as I talk about Jesus, and if you picked up an outline, you notice that I'm talking about Jesus, the beautiful shepherd. Now, if you're expecting um, Greg to be up here this evening, Greg is still, of course, as you can tell this morning, uh, voice is still not cooperating, so I'm going to bring the lesson and, uh, and we'll go on from there. But I wanted this quarter, as we're talking about being holy in my worship, I wanted to do a lesson or two, and I've tried to do that, that really views Jesus in particular ways, talks about Jesus, and maybe talks about, as we were saying this morning, you remember from the slides and so forth, he is our master, our chosen master. We have subjected ourselves to him. But it's not simply that. We don't feel dominated in that sense. I don't suspect anyone does. But it is motivated from love. We love him. And we love him because of who he is, what he has done for us to be certain. But I think as a Christian matures, it is, it is even more than that. And it is what he is and what he continues to do. And so a relationship is forged, and I like to talk about that this evening. It's interesting that Jesus, if you want to open to John chapter 10... Jesus, in this allegory, some would call it, um, extended metaphor, others would call it, doesn't matter, parable, some would even say, although I don't think it really takes the characteristics of that. But Jesus compares himself throughout the beginning of John 10 as a, a, to a shepherd. And we, his people, to his flock of sheep. Now, critics make a lot out of that, of how we are nothing but sheep and kind of blindly follow and all, and and we know that's not so. No, there is a relationship that exists between the shepherd and the sheep, and it did in old times, and so it becomes a beautiful analogy for Jesus to say, I am, as John 10 says in most translations, I am the good shepherd. But you'll notice that I call this the beautiful shepherd, and there's a reason why. When you look in Scripture, it is interesting. Um, And we're going to go back, and you may even want to be turning to Isaiah 53. We're going to take a look at that passage. And it is interesting that as we tend to uh, be drawn to people, maybe I say it like that, that we do so for physical beauty. Maybe not only that, but that there is some charisma is the term we use. Um, I'm not going to get deep into that. That comes from an old New Testament word, as a matter of fact. But there is some charisma And we understand what that means. It's just something about them. It can be looks, but it is usually combined with something else. And we're drawn to them. We find ourselves just kind of looking at them, and uh, not even in lust or whatever, but just looking at them, maybe admiring their physical characteristics. They're beautiful people. And they're beautiful people, you know, like me, walking the face of the kidding. But they're beautiful people just walking around, and they have talent, and they have that something else about them, and we're drawn to them. Well, it's interesting that when you look in Scripture, Jesus doesn't describe himself as beautiful, and we will get to that. But some would even claim, you know, it's almost contradictory, because Isaiah 53, if it says anything, it says he's not beautiful. Go there if you're already there in that passage. But look with me, if you will, as it is talking about the uh, crucifixion, obviously foreshadowing that, foreshadowing all all the uh, pain, all the suffering, all the physical destruction, even, we might say, that he went through. But I'm looking down especially at verse 2, when Isaiah said, He, speaking of Christ, obviously, He shall grow up before Him, Him, God the Father, as a tender plant, 
as a root out of a dry ground. Now, what that usually means is that there's not a lot of strength, a lot of not, a, not a lot of stability in the plant. But even more than that, he shall have no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire it. Now, regardless of how your translation does translate that, there are three distinct terms here that Jesus uh, does not possess, if you will. That if we describe Jesus, he does not have form, he does not have comeliness, and there is no beauty that would draw us or attract us to him. I want to go a little further, further with that. When we say that he has no form, because these are very distinct terms, when you look at it and it says he has no form, well, that has to do with his particular figure. If we're talking about Jesus as a man, if we were just looking at whatever he looks like, none of us know. But whatever he looks like, if we're looking at Jesus as a man, this term has to do with his figure. Now, I'm going to get into that for a little bit. It proposes something that you gaze at, you stare at. And you stare at because of the physical appearance and because of, as the old terminology goes, the figure that they strike in your concept, in your image. We say something like that because we say so-and-so is or has a striking figure. If we might be looking at a Miss Universe contest or we might be looking at some athlete, Montel and I, we watch a lot of basketball and, and We've got a, you know, a guy that's just come back to the Atlanta Hawks. And long story short, this guy is massive. And you're just struck by that. You look at him and see how wide his shoulders are. When somebody walks up to him, they fit in this part of his body. You know, the shoulders just extend way past on either side. That's a striking figure. And you can't help but gaze at it. And, and you keep looking back and looking back because, wow, Jesus doesn't have any of that. Beyond that, there is no comeliness. Comeliness was a term that was used for magnificence. Maybe we might look at King Saul. The Bible speaks of him being head, a head above. You know, we would say head and shoulders above everybody around him. Just a magnificent physical guy. There's no magnificence in Jesus. But the term is also used for ornament or splendor. In other words, there's something that stands out. Have you ever noticed someone, another human being, and there was something that just stood out, like Dwight Howard's massive spread of shoulder? Or you might look at a woman's hair, and, man, her hair is just beautiful, or the eyes of an individual, or whatever it might be. And usually, we all, when we're attracted to someone else, you know, we find things about them, there are things about them that just are very attractive. And we see that. Jesus has none of that. You might say of someone like that, that so-and-so is majestic. And we all know what that means. It just, it just kind of transcends. It just, but Jesus has none of that. And there is no beauty. And beauty has to do with exactly what you would expect. That is the handsome appearance. Uh, regardless of your taste or who you think is handsome, a lot of people, you know, back in the day, as people say, thought Elvis just was handsome. Women, even men, you know, he's handsome. Uh, Denzel Washington, a handsome individual. Jesus had none of that. Now, we don't know what he looked like. 
But these are three terms that specifically mean there's something about him physically that would draw you to him, and he ain't got any of it, is what the Bible is saying. And I think that's by design. I mean, God, if he was going to, and he did, make the body for Jesus to come into and be born into, could have been, obviously, the most majestic, the most handsome, I mean, just striking individual that ever lived. But God chose that he would be none of those things. So that there would not be, in any sense, you would look at this guy, and all of that or any of that would stand out, and you'd be drawn to him for that. Now, I meant to belabor that point because I think it's important we understand that. Man through the centuries, and it's interesting to me, whenever someone conceptualizes Jesus and tries to paint a picture of Jesus, and you know the very famous one painted, oh, four or five hundred years ago, that we all know the picture of Jesus, quote-unquote, he's a very handsome figure, long, flowing, blonde hair, and all of that kind of thing. Jesus would have been none of that. We don't know how he looked. But we know what God says is none of that. And yet, now go back with me to John chapter 10. In John 10, Jesus begins to talk of himself as a shepherd. And Jesus will say at least twice in this passage, down in verse 11, for example, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for a sheep. Down again in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. Now it's interesting. Because there are two words in the original language, and they have very precise meanings. One of them has to do, when we say something is good, we mean it's morally good. God is good, we would say. We all understand what that means. We know what the goodness of God is. We understand what it means to be good. We tell our children, be good. We know what we're talking about, moral goodness. And there's another term when we say that that's a you know, goodly pearl, the pearl of great price. So that's a good, you know, we out shopping for something, say we're shopping for diamonds. When Montel and, we're out, and I were out looking for wedding rings and so forth, I didn't know a whole lot about that stuff. You know, I never wore a diamond in my life. But Montel would say, that's a good diamond. I knew exactly what she meant. Had no moral quality about it, but it was good. And usually it was expensive, no. But it was good. We understand what that means. And when we talk about good in that sense, when we say something like that is good, we mean it's beautiful. It has some physical characteristic. Now, Jesus, I am the good shepherd, and we already know from Isaiah 53 that there isn't anything particularly beautiful about Jesus. So we would expect, Jesus says, I am the morally good shepherd. But he doesn't. In fact, in every case, as you look down through this, he chooses the word for beautiful. And that's why I call the lesson the beautiful shepherd. So when you've got two particular words, and incidentally, the word good is used about Jesus. You remember the rich young ruler when he runs up to Jesus and he says, good master? He doesn't say beautiful master. No, he uses that term morally good. Other people recognized him as good, and probably everybody around him recognized as not being too beautiful. You know what I mean? Because the Bible says that. But yet Jesus stood and said, I am the beautiful shepherd. Now that's interesting. And he chose to describe himself this way, so it leads us to question, why the beautiful shepherd? What's beautiful about it? And I think the passage that Kevin read for us a moment ago in Ephesians 4 begins to 
hit at why that, that is so, why Jesus is beautiful. And Jesus does even here in John 10. Jesus is beautiful. Not just morally good. Not just everything about Jesus is good in the sense of morality. But to those who love him, and I will use this term, to those who are captivated by him. Jesus is beautiful. You can be captivated by someone that is drawn to them and just truly given to that individual. That they are beautiful to you. You love seeing them. It's not just that there's something you have with them and so you tolerate their ugliness, but that individual is beautiful to you, attractive to you. You feel good when you just see that person. And a lot of times it really doesn't have anything to do with how they look. That's why... You know, it is said of two people who are really in love. They begin their life and they're attracted to each other. You know, and remember those terms that I used a moment ago that Jesus is not? And I said, but usually when you and I are attracted to someone, there are things like that. Something stands out that's magnificent. Something stands out that's striking in their figure. Something stands out that's really handsome or beautiful. And we're attracted to that. And then those people grow old. And maybe they've been married for 50, 60 years, you know, and they're like I am. You're sagging in every place you didn't even know you had, you know, and all that. And, and, and yet those two old people look at each other, and they don't just look at each other with, uh, you know, I tolerate you because you're really old and ugly now, but you can see it in their eyes. I mean, that person is absolutely beautiful to that mate that they've been with for all those years. They're attracted to them. Maybe sometimes more than they ever were. And we understand that. And it's because that person, as the term would go, captivates our attention. Now, we may not use that term as much anymore. But here's what the the word means. When I say I'm captivated by something, it means I'm taken captive. It means I'm drawn in. Or we just simply say it like this sometimes. I'm taken by so-and-so. We may may not even stop to think what that means, but we really do understand what it means. There's something about that person that just draws me in and won't let go of me. That's Jesus. So when we begin to discuss Jesus as the beautiful shepherd, we understand people are captivated by all kinds of things, but we are naturally drawn, captivated by Jesus. And so we begin to look at it. In Ephesians chapter 4, and you may want to go over there with me to that passage again that Kevin read, the Bible clearly says in that passage, he, and the King James says, he led captivity captive. I don't like that translation. And the reason why is because I don't think it hits at exactly what's being portrayed here. What's happened in this passage is you've had a description of the whole system of faith that we all enjoy. We may get into some, some of that more next year. But we enjoy that. We are part of that. We know it. But then to each individual, one of us, verse 7, Christ begins to extend to us something. He enables us. He pulls us in. There is a relationship with him individually. And so this passage is quoted in verse 8. He went up into heaven. He ascended to the throne to make all of this system possible. In other words, to be coronated as king, etc., etc., Now all of this is set in place, and I'm now part of all of this. And there are gifts, and he's going to discuss those in a few verses, that are given to all of us to share in that. But it's interesting then when he says, 
The fact that he did ascend into heaven, having done all that he has done, and beginning to do all that he is going to do. And that's what the passage is really saying. He captivated captivity. Now, what does that mean? Well, you and I understand that we're drawn to Jesus, we're pulled in by Jesus because of what he has to offer. We know that we are the captive in sin. The Bible puts it in the sense of we are in bondage to sin. Ed led a song. I'd like for you to turn and read part of at least what that song is based on from Matthew chapter 11. So go over there and read it for me. Here's the idea, Matthew 11. Here would be Jesus saying, I'm the beautiful shepherd. Be attracted to me and who I am and what I have to offer you. Come to me, verse 28. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. You're working hard, you're getting nowhere. Spiritually speaking, of course, but in other ways as well. You're laden with heavy burdens. They're they're just things that are weighing you down. Jesus says, I will give you rest. The older you get, the more encumbered your life is, the more problems you pile up, the more burdens you have in your past, the more things you've done that are wrong, that you feel guilty about, and on and on and on. The more rest is a beautiful thing to you. I was thinking about this yesterday, and I was thinking how hard I fought taking a nap when I was a little boy. I hated it. I mean, I was one of those absolute, would not sleep. In defiance, lay there, have to lay there for 30 minutes or an hour, and tell them, you know, I'll keep my eyes open, I won't sleep. <laughs> how much now, how precious a nap is. Boy, how life has changed, right? Well, spiritually speaking, that's Jesus. You may not have understood that, Michael, when you were young and you didn't have all this in your life, but now it's all piled up. But Jesus can give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. One person says, all that means is when you become a Christian, you trade one set of burdens for another. No, that's ridiculous. It's not what he's saying. He talks more of a learning process, a yoke of discipline, we might say. But learn of me. Learn who I am. Come to know me intimately. That's the idea. Just like two people that have been in love for 75 years. They know each other more than any human would ever know them. Learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. Learn the humility of God. It's an incredible study. The humility of God. The meekness of God. Meaning how strong God is. And yet how gentle he can be with a child or with you and I as his children. You'll find rest unto your soul. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. When we begin to look at that, we think of those, and we could explore that for the next couple of hours. But the more we know of that, the more we understand, man, that guy is beautiful. And we would say that. That's the terminology we would use in our own day. So and so, yeah, that guy is beautiful, man, for what he can do and who he is. And we use it of athletes, and we use it of entertainers, how much more so of Jesus? If we look over at 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I just read one verse here, we as the men, we studied this in last month's Friday night class. But look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, and look down at verse 26. When he says, and that they may, and notice the terminology, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. You can't do that without Jesus' help. You can't recover yourself on your own without some help. You would be trapped by him, 
you would be caught by him, taken captive by him at his will. But with Jesus' help, you can. We talk about someone turning their life around. We talk about going from being one thing. I talked with one of our visitors here for quite a while after services this morning. And we were talking about this very thing. Something he caught me saying, you know, about my grandmother in the sermon. And we talked about it. But here is the idea. You look at your life, and some of us can look at our life and where we've come from and what we've done and the sins we've committed and so forth. And then we think of Jesus and how Jesus comes along and with his help, we can recover. Now, that term isn't just used for alcoholics or people with drug problems. It's used for all of us. We can recover ourselves out of Satan's snare. The one that can help us do that and turn our life around and give us peace of mind and help us to be at rest when we were torn all the pieces over the life we've lived, that guy is beautiful. But I'll tell you more. As we continue to look at this, if you're in 2 Timothy, go back with me to chapter 1 and look at verse 9. Paul speaks of him and he says, Jesus who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, or not according only to our works, the idea would be, but also, and more importantly, according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Notice verse 10. But now it is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. How is it so clear? Well, it's clear in that he has abolished death. I don't know about you, but the older I get, I have always been one of those people that was kind of afraid of death. I just, you know, when I was a little boy, um, I remember at five years old trying to have a long, drawn-out discussion with my dad about death. You know, and, and it just was something I, I didn't understand it, and I was scared of it. And I, even though I think I understand it better, seriously, it still is kind of a fearful thing. And yet, you look at death and you understand. If I were a person, I, I would hate to be, and sometimes I do. I look at old people that appear on TV or whatever, and you know they, they say they don't believe in God, and I would think, man, how miserable. How miserable to know that you have a few short years, and not long, and all of that, and you, you believe in nothing. How scary would that be? And yet to know that Jesus has just abolished it. In other words, for the Christian, there is no death. And that's what he's saying. It's gone. It's taken away. There's certainly death in the sense of your soul leaving your body, but it just leaves your body to go to a better place. What he is saying here is, it's made so clear what Jesus has done because he's abolished death and he has brought life and immortality to light. I don't know how it was before Jesus came. I don't know the understanding. I read the Old Testament. It doesn't seem like they had a deep, far-reaching understanding of life and death, or death and eternal life. And when you read the writings of ancient man, they don't seem to be reflected there either. And so they come up with all kinds of things, most of which are very physical, and they just don't understand. But when Jesus comes to the world, we talked about it this morning, and he brings that light, and he brings that truth, and he begins to express the truth of it. And what he says is, let me tell you all about eternal life because I just came from there. And to make that even more so, he died as a human being and went to the place we are immediately going before heaven and came back from that place to say, as if to say, 
Hey, I went there and checked it all out. It's everything you ever dreamed it would be. Don't worry. It's going to be good for you. And then when you leave that time, and I do come back, and I do meet you in the air as the Bible describes, oh, unimaginably. And so as Paul says here, life and immortality to life, and it's done through the gospel. Whenever I begin to get sidetracked, and I'm worrying a little bit, and I'm thinking, I'm feeling my mortality, and I'm a little scared, and all that all over again, all I've got to do is pick up the Bible and start reading again. Boy, there is peace there. Learn of me, Jesus said. So I say all of that to say this. The one that can do all of that is beautiful. But that's not just someone who's good. You know, this guy is good, and I am not. Because you see, that's the dilemma the rich young ruler was in, isn't it? Why do you call me good, Jesus said. Do you understand the separation? You come up to me and you say, good master, what good, morally good thing can I do that I may have eternal life? Do you understand the separation there is between you and goodness? And you know, the guy might have had an argument. He might have said, and he really does, doesn't he? Jesus said, okay, let's start. You know the commandments. Keep all the... I've done it. No argument from Jesus. And you can almost hear Jesus saying, well, boy, you're really good, aren't you? But there's one thing you lack. How many of us would change places in just in this sentence with the rich young ruler for to have Jesus assess our lives and say, Michael, you've only got one thing wrong. And it's immediately correctable and you will be absolutely perfect on your way to heaven. I'd take that deal in a heartbeat. Would you? The rich young ruler only had one. One thing he liked. And it was doable. Hard. But it was doable. Go sell everything you have, give it away to the poor, come and follow me. You have eternal life. But he couldn't do that. And so it falls back to this point. Do you understand how far human beings are from goodness? And I'll tell you exactly how far we are. We are Jesus Christ away from being good. There isn't anything you can do. There's no amount of good. You can't pile up enough good. You can't outweigh the bad. You will always have those things against you outside and separate from Jesus. And it will always, even one of them, will always be enough for God to say, you are not good enough. But with Jesus... The Father looks at Jesus. You are in Jesus. You are not good enough on your own, but in Jesus you are absolutely perfect so that God would look at you and say, unreprovable, unblameable, nothing against you, absolutely good, you come in. That guy is beautiful. Man, that is beautiful. And isn't that what Jesus says in John 10? I know my sheep. They're known of me. We have a perfect relationship. They are in my hand. Nobody can take them out of my hand. And if that wasn't enough, my hand's in the Father's hand. You certainly can't get it out of His hand. You are guaranteed. And that's beautiful. And so you begin to look at all of that. And so you ask the question again, why the beautiful shepherd Jesus? And you begin to understand. No, if we look back at Isaiah 53, and let's do that for a moment as we close out. If we look at Isaiah 53... And we begin to talk about the beautiful shepherd. We, we look at Isaiah 52, we say, no, not beautiful. Physically, certainly not beautiful. Beat up, 
I mean, cut up, beat up, beaten, you know, senseless, etc. In fact, go back to chapter 52, when it says, many were even, verse 14, astonished at you, at you, Jesus. His visage, which means his whole appearance, everything about him, his visage was so marred more than any man. Do we take that literally? I sometimes think, yeah, you should. There have been people who have been beaten to death. There have been people who have been hacked up, cut up, burned, etc., etc. But I wonder if anyone has ever gone through everything he went through and lived to continue to go through it until he, like John 10 says, I put my life down. No man takes it from me. And it went on and on and on and on for hours. Do you suspect there was, I wonder, you suspect there was anyone in that crowd who loved him, who couldn't stand what he was going through and prayed to God, let it end. Just end it. I know we've felt that way about people, haven't we? We've looked at someone and the pain they're going through and all they're going through and we've said, just let it end. And we've even prayed to God for the mercy to let it end. It went on and on and on and on and added humility and mocking, making fun of him. On and on and on and on it went. His visage was so marred more than any man. And when you begin to understand that, you did that for me. You took it. Because sin has to pay that incredible a price in God's mind. And I can't pay that. But you did that for me. You read down through this. We're not going to read it. But you read down through this, and I know you know the passage. And it's, it speaks of what God did, where God laid our sin on him, where God, of course, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Where God just has to even break that relationship. It speaks of all of that. And he did it for me. And you say, man, how beautiful. That's why we love people, isn't it? And that's why people are really beautiful to us. It may start out with that physical attraction or whatever. It doesn't last long. And for the people that only have that, they just go from one to the other to the other to the other because it's not lasting. It's never enough. But then someone is beautiful to you. And they do all those things that no one else has ever done. Maybe they stand by you in the roughest of times. Maybe they believe in you when really there's just no reason to believe in you. Maybe they, they are nice to you, kind to you. Maybe they do for you what can't be done. Maybe they calm your fears. Maybe they, like my grandmother, literally sit by your side for two years while you go through deep, dark depression. Every day, right there. It doesn't have to. It's not your job. But you do it. And you do it because you love somebody. I'm going to tell you, when you look at a person like that, I don't care how old they get, how ugly to the world they would be. That is the most beautiful person you have ever seen. And that's Jesus. And when you think of Jesus and what Jesus has done and how that means that the worst sins I've ever committed can be taken away from me, cleansed from me. When you think of the fact that if I had to go before a court, I had to go before human beings, that they would look at me and they would say, guilty, no excuse, get out of my sight. But God says, I accept you completely. Not only do I accept you, I adopt you as my son. And I make you a complete heir to everything I have. That's Jesus. And that's why Jesus is beautiful. 
here tonight and you don't know the beautiful shepherd. You don't enjoy that relationship with him that I speak of. But tonight you'd be willing to confess your belief in him. You know he is the son of God. You may not understand all of how, and I don't at this point, understand how God does all the things he does, how Jesus can love to that degree, but he does. And you'll confess that he is the Son of God and be willing to do the best you can to change whatever needs to be changed in your life because you love him and you want to do what pleases him. And you'll be baptized to have your sins washed away. What a wondrous thing to be able to come up out of the water of baptism and know it's gone. It's all gone. You don't have to be guilty, worry about it anymore. Maybe you're here and you've done that and yet... Your life is not committed to Him, and you want it to be. You do love Him, and you want a better relationship with Him. He is beautiful to you. You don't mind saying that. If you need to come for any reason, please come. I'll at least say it.